This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Thirty seconds yeah, to air. What do you think about flowers? Actually, I think we should have these are for the guests. Um, Pam, I need some more books for these mics. Anyone have the promo for the show notes? Wait, where's the Fiji water? Is this this isn't is this tap water? Fifteen seconds. Can somebody get the cat. I can't drink tap Grab water. The cat. Can, can, can someone tell Joe's mom to stop vacuuming? It's not hard to find. Has anybody this seen feet. my hair gel? Tesian water, natural. Quiet on the set. Live in three, two. Live from Joe's mom's half-finished basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it's all show business in the basement because today we roll out the red carpet to the director of the new hit movie, The House, Andrew J. Cohen. We'll also share a headline with details about a senior scammed out of over a million dollars, throw out the Haven lifeline to Andrew, who has a tax question, answer a letter from Steve with a question about emergency funds, and still have time for my solid gold movie trivia. And here they are, one guy who's the host of a top-rated money podcast, and the other who's, well, Joe. Please welcome Joe Saul Cihai and special guest, retirement answer man, Roger Whitney. Thanks for that great introduction. I love that. How do you get top billing? <laughs> That's horrible. Did you get Doug 20 bucks? You know, being in your basement, by the way, this is like the rickiest card table I've I ever t- seen. Do people think it's not a real <laughs> card table? Totally true. And it totally is. Hey, everybody, welcome to Wednesday on the Stacky Benjamin Show. I am Joe Saul Cihai, Average Show Money on Twitter. And what a show we got for you today. We're bringing in the heavy guns, man. We got a director of a pit movie. What's that all about? One of my favorite movies he was a producer of, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. That was like my life story. <laughs> that and I was married at 23. <laughs> but I'm up. He's here all week, folks. Tip your weight, staff. You know what else Roger Whitney really likes? He likes on a weekend, light a couple candles, put on some Barry White, and he heads to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. Because when you go to magnify money, the average person there saves 450 bucks. And Roger knows that the compounding interest on that money means you'll have a few thousand, man, yeah, over time. Baby. And that- whether it's your credit card, your savings account, your checking account, no matter what financial product it is, why would you walk into your bank and just say, give me whatever you got? When you can shop all the different banks, in fact, a uh, recent study showed that 92% of the stuff that's available is at Magnify Money. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money to get there. That's what I'm talking about, baby. <laughs> that's my Barry White. That's, a, that's my Barry White. That is a poor Barry White. But we got Roger Whitney, the retirement answer man, with us today, answering your questions later in the show. 
We've got Andrew J. Cohen from the movie The House. But first, we've got your headlines, so let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from MarketWatch. This is written by Clark Randall. Your 401k, four things to consider when you change jobs. Says when you terminate employment, you need to make important decisions regarding your retirement plan. Generally, you have three choices that allow you to continue to defer income taxation. Leave the investments with your current employer, move them to the new one, or transfer them over to an IRA. Of those ones, which one do you like best, Roger? This is uh, actually a really hot topic right now for the regulators because the standard answer from a financial advisor is, oh, you got to move that to an IRA so I can manage it. But just as an aside, that's the whole thing advisors are talking about, right? Right. So I can manage it. Exactly. Exactly. So, And that's become a real regulatory hot button because sometimes it makes better sense to keep it in the current 401k or move it to the new 401k. And there can be a lot of instances where that may be the best case. Let's talk about that. Why would you leave it in the same 401k it's in now? Well, some of the the advantages of it is it's going to depend on whether there are robust choices involved in terms of what you can invest in. And obviously the fees that the 401k is charging, and those can be all over the board from very inexpensive with a huge menu to really crappy choices with really high fees. And that has to calculate into that decision, right? How do you find out that information? Because most people have no idea what their fees are. Well, that's the hard part is all the all the documentation for you to tell you about those fees are usually pretty hard to read. But yeah. most people can go online and in the menu list of your investment choices, they should have the fees outlined on what those investment options are. Now, it may be that if you do work with a financial advisor, you if they're a good financial advisor, they help you evaluate, hey, man, it makes sense to keep it there because you're not going to get this kind of deal if you go outside or if you go to the new 401k. Right. Another big consideration, especially in this time of low interest rates, is some 401ks will have what's called an insured money account, which will pay, I've seen, around 2%. That's like a money market. Isn't it bad when we're high-fiving each other about 2%? I know. (laughs) It's amazing. Well, if you look at like the the Lehman, you know, I call it the Lehman Aggregate Bond Index. Now it's the Barclays something something aggregate index. It has a yield of about 2.7%. A lot of times 401ks will have this insured cash option, which gives you the yield of what you could get in the bond market right now, but with zero interest rate risk in terms of losing money if it happens to go up and down. So that's another reason, especially in the the world that I deal in with people over 50 and looking at retirement, that it might make sense to keep it so you have access to an option like that. What about rolling it over to the new one? Same thing, fees, choices. Yeah, fees, choices, and then obviously it's just simplifying it, right? What I found is we But that drives me crazy. Let me tell you, it drives me crazy. Of all the three choices, that's my least favorite. Because if I leave it with the old place that was really good and they decide to go cheap, right? New management comes in, they get bought by another company, things things get messed up. I can still roll it to an IRA later, right? So I can do my own thing. If I roll it to the new 401k, my ability, unless they have some early exit clause to roll it again, I think then becomes limited. Oh, yeah, you're exactly right. So simplification has to be a consideration, right? right? Because what you'll see a lot of people do, and I see it when I'm evaluating balance sheets with clients is over the years, they've had two or three different employers and they've never done anything. And they have all this money out there in different 401ks from different employers and they've never looked at it. 
They've never logged on. They've never managed the allocation. They've never looked at whether the good 401k is now a bad 401k. So it's just a consideration that you have to bake into the pie. And you talked uh, briefly about company stock. I think companies, if you've got a bunch of company stock inside your 401k, rolling it to an IRA might be the worst thing to do. Yeah. Well, there are two, actually two things. One is company stock. If you have a lot of company stock that has a very low cost basis, when you leave that corporation, there's something called net unrealized appreciation, which allows you to take the stock out of the 401k, pay the taxes on the cost basis, and then as long as you hold that for the appropriate amount of time, then when you ultimately sell it, you get the long-term capital gains, which is a lot lower than- I have seen people save tons of money. You're talking- potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just tons of money. When, it's funny, in, in one case I'm thinking of, uh, this uh, gentleman was a uh, a Pepsi employee, Pepsi executive, had spent his whole time there. I was competing against another advisor. I got the client based on that I knew this rule. I mean, it, but, which which makes me mad because the other advisor should have known the rule. It's not like they're hiding it. What, what I find when advisors are advising clients you know, it's hard to remember all these nuanced things that might come right. up. And if you don't have a good standard of care, a checklist that you go through, you can miss these types of things. Another good reason or something to consider about, especially if you separate service from a company after your age 55. Good point here. If you leave it in the 401k, you can take that money out without paying yeah. the penalty. Yeah. But as soon as you move it to a new 401k or move it to an IRA, you lose that option. So if you're over 55 and you get separated... You might want to leave it there so you can maintain that option. But generally, that said, Roger, advisors, even though some of them are doing it for the wrong reason, that generally rolling it to the IRA is is the clear choice. Yeah, yeah, because you have maximum control. You have all of the investment options, whether you're managing the assets on your own or you implementing it with the advisor. One thing I, I don't like to see is when a client has these different buckets and they're not coordinated. Right. Right. They're managing them all in these little pockets. And then when you look at the overall net worth, it's sort of a a jumble of different types of things that aren't coordinated to work towards what that client wants to achieve. Yeah. Like you're trying to be perfect with your 401k, even though you have some suboptimal funds, you're trying to be perfect with the IRA. And instead, let's say that there's not a good international choice in the 401k, skip it completely and just do it in the IRA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good stuff there. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. Our second piece comes to us from Money. This is horrible. This is written by Megan Lionheart. How a phony online boyfriend scammed a 75-year-old widow out of a million dollars. Roger, I hate hearing stories like this. I did not know that 75-year-olds were online. <laughs> <laughs> She's online? Good for it's her. It's amazing. Why, if you'd have known she was online, you would have scammed her out of a million? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's the fraud that happens is here. I actually have a story about this, if I can sort of pivot a little bit. Yeah. Is I'm, I work with a client and he is having me talk to a relative of his who says, Hey, man, this guy's recommending these insurance products. I'm not quite sure about it. And it's like, Well, give me the name of the advisor. Let me look him up. So I look him up, which is easy to do at finra.org or the SEC. And I look at him. And the guy has a securities fraud rap sheet that's about three pages long. Oh, no. And he was banned from the industry. So this guy's not even in the industry, so he's selling insurance products that don't require you to be under. But here's the thing. After having this conversation with this client, doing the due diligence, and with the relative, he's still a really nice guy, and she hasn't pulled herself away from this particular... 
I don't know if there's some psychology around that of we want to trust people. And if they say the right things, you could look at all of the facts and still go down a really bad path. And I don't know how you protect that. A wire transfer that uh, a widow had made, the 75-year-old, has been a uh, recent widow. It was her first Thanksgiving without her husband of almost 50 years. And of course, he had handled all the money beforehand, right? It's her first year handling the money. Uh, this wire transfer sent earlier that month to a new friend she met through Match.com had been flagged as a fraudulent transaction. At first, the 75-year-old tried to explain the call was an error, but it soon became apparent. It wasn't a mistake at all. She says it felt like a physical punch to the gut. And while TD Ameritrade, who caught it, initially thought that it was 200000 it turns out it was actually a million. Oh, my. They only oh caught my. the last 200000 800000 had made it through. So the worst part is, according to this article, she had allowed the swindle to happen. It says, like a number of seniors, she'd been targeted, in her case successfully, by an unscrupulous fraudster who posed as a friend in order to steal her life savings. So, I mean, think of that. And I, and you see those type of situations in that as you get older, if you're not maintaining your social network and your spouse passes, you end up being lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. You're almost becoming the last person standing, which allows you to get a lot more susceptible to someone that befriends you and, and plays on that. I mean, this is the, the first Thanksgiving after her husband passed. I don't know how long they were married, but that's a really lonely time. Case and, in point, a friend suggested, according to this piece, the dating site Match.com is a way to take her mind off the tumult of the preceding year, right? She was more than ready for some entertainment. While she wasn't at all ready for anything, quote, hot and heavy, the widow says, she wanted to rejoin the world to see what was out there. And what she found was a man who called himself Edward Duffy, who entered her life after he liked her photo on Match.com. Conversation started small, sharing basic information. He told her he was younger. Turns out, by the way, he was 33. And a widower that his wife had died of cancer two years prior. He was a retired accountant raised in England, living now in Texas, she said. She revealed she had three kids and was trying to learn how to handle home repairs. They hit it off, and the relationship moved quickly from Match.com messages to daily calls and text. While they never met in person, she says... Duffy's missives were sweet and filled with poetry. While she's not a big fan of poetry, she enjoyed the attention, and soon he told her that he loved her. Flattered, she took it as a compliment that a man 10 years her junior, so she thought, yeah. would be interested in her. Here's, here's the big problem as you read through this. They had a financial advisor, and I'm going to read from the article, Roger. She knew they had some IRAs and some IBM stock from her husband. There was a financial advisor through Schwab, but she had never met the man. When I was a financial planner, that was a problem. Your spouse passes away. You're meeting the financial person for the first time. They're the person besides you who knows where everything is, and you have never met them. That's, that's a huge mistake. And it's a very common mistake, and a lot of it is. I mean, I look at, I'll take my wife and I. We've been married 27 years. You know, in a marriage, you have that delegation of duties, right? And what, sometimes it's the husband. Sometimes it's the wife that is in charge of those things. And the other one doesn't want to know and they don't want to participate. And Ugh. it's so important to have, even if it's an annual meeting. So everybody at has, least, who know, do I, yeah, at least, who know do I the, call? at least know the person you should at least know the person. Yeah. Because what happened was later on, just to cut to the chase here later on, when it was this guy, Duffy, the scammer against the financial advisor, she believed the scammer because she had a personal relationship with a scammer and had none with yeah. the person that her husband had worked with for a number of years from a reputable firm. And even when the reputable firm told her 
that she was probably being ripped off, she still believed the scammer. Because he had her heart. Absolutely. He had her heart. Oh, it just makes you sick. I will link to this too. I think there's two big lessons here. Lesson number one is if you're working with professionals, everybody on the team's got to get together. And all, it doesn't mean you have to be involved all the time, but know everybody. Who do you call when something happens? All the advice has to dovetail. And you know what? The people listening to this show are probably the ones that take care of it. And if your spouse or your significant other, or there's somebody else that should be meeting that should know these people, you, you got to get them involved, man. Totally. Got to get them involved. And then the second lesson, a 401k, IRA is probably the way to go, but you should still look at maybe leaving it where it is. And then also look at your new company. Don't really like rolling it to the new company that you moved to, but uh, look at all three of those before making your decision. Some impressive, impressive credits that Andrew J. Cohen has. I'm so excited about this. 40-year-old version. He was the executive producer of that film. If you saw Neighbors or Neighbors 2, now uh, Cheryl and Nick saw that. I didn't see. Did you see Neighbors? Uh, I saw part of it. Yeah. <laughs> it was very funny. Yeah. And then, of course, the most recent one, uh, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates, which was hilarious. Andrew J. Cohen, that's the short list of things that he's worked on. When we heard there was a new movie coming out called The House, which is... Well, we'll talk about what it's about, but it has a lot to do with money and a lot to do with mismanaging your finances, starring Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler. Very excited to talk about the co-writer and director of that film, Andrew J. Cohen, coming down to the basement. And Andrew J. Cohen joins us in the basement. Have a seat, man. How are you? Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. How you doing? Good. I'm glad that you could make Texarkana part of your whirlwind tour for the house. Oh, absolutely. Speaking of the house, this is a, this is a great house you got here in a marvelous basement. Well, I think you're the first person who's described it in a sentence that didn't involve creepy. <laughs> I enjoy creepy basements. So to me, this is like heaven. I'm like, I'm like, all right. Growing up, I used to throw a lot of uh, funk parties in my basement, so... I have a fondness for basements. Well, I wanted to ask you about basements because obviously the basement plays a big part, big role in this movie. You're co-writer with Brendan O'Brien on the script. And I'm thinking, Andrew, I want you to tell me that this story is autobiographical, that maybe your parents didn't have enough money for college. And so they had to have this underground casino. Tell me that's the way it worked. You're very, very close. It's autobiographical in the sense that I would go to Todd Kramer's basement in high school, and we would definitely play poker and craps and think that we were gangsters of some sort. Did you win big money? No, no. You never win big money because you always lose big money. So I guess, yes, I did win big money. And I also lost big money. So I always end up even. I want to know if either you or Todd, depending on whose basement it was, had that massage parlor in the corner. (laughs) There was no, no massage parlor to speak of. It was a bunch of guys freshman year who had been left by the freshman girls. And we were like, all right, we know we're not this big of losers. We need to, you know, we need to do something cool. So I guess that was our, that was the way we figured it out. Seriously though, how does the process of making a movie like the house start? Do you say, Hey, this world needs a movie about bad financial planning. (laughs) Uh, That was a later offshoot of it, (laughs) but it really started. I wanted to do a movie about high school kids who start a casino in their hometown and keep it from their parents which, you know, that was like more of my sweet spot growing up. Although I probably just revealed it to all the parents 
that we kept it a secret from. Right <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but that's it. So then, then after Neighbors, my manager was like, you write adults going through these inner conflicts and outer conflicts so well, why don't you do it about the parents? And then boom, you know, that's when it really busted wide open. It was like, oh, wait a second. The parents are not telling their daughter? Uh, what does that look like? And then really it was like trying to think of how would you need to pay for, you know, first off, what's the worst financial situation you could get into as a parent? And then very quickly it was can't pay for college. And then, you know, what are the ways that you could possibly get yourself out in the casino? It was just, you know, that, that, that seems like a, a very good get rich quick scheme or the worst get rich quick scheme, right. uh, which is good for a comedy. I want to ask about the scene in the financial planner's office. Whose idea was it to bring the financial planner into the movie? I think it was sort of, you have to, it literally, everybody we talked to was like, how are they so stupid? And so you kind of needed that voice of the audience, you know, saying, are you guys serious? You know, uh, and weirdly enough, that financial planner, that was day one of shooting. So it also was, you know, we didn't do rehearsals on this movie. So I used day one as Will and Amy's rehearsals. And there's so much improvisation in that scene, you know, very on purpose, but we probably did that scene six different ways. And, it, you know, there's just gold in there. But yeah, you need the financial planner because you need somebody to go, you guys are idiots and you don't understand numbers. I love the look in her eye during that scene. I mean, she she gives a great visual of how dumb are you? <laughs> she was also probably like, why are we shooting this scene for three hours? <laughs> no, but she, yeah, no, it, it was, you need that. Because first off, it's sort of a nightmare scenario for a parent, right? Like, so what is the one thing you need to do? It's provide for your kids. And I did some research on this because I myself suffer from math anxiety in which if you say numbers to me, I just hear like, and uh, you need an explanation for why at least one of them is so incompetent. And, you know, it became apparent that Will should be that person. And that every time you mention math, Will uh, tunes out, gets super anxious, and his heart starts beating loud and his palms sweat. Well, I'm going to do just a little spoiler for people that haven't yet seen the film, and that is that Amy and Will both tell their financial planner, they say, no, we've got $401,000. You missed that. And the financial planner looks at them and says, no, you have a 401k. That's <laughs> Who, who was that a joke that you and Brendan wrote or was that was that part of the riffing that Amy and Will did? It was literally when I was looking at my financial planning sheet and going like, OK, where's the total? I saw that and then <laughs> it was like, oh, no, I just did that because I was like, ooh, 401. Not bad. But then, uh, yeah, that's what my brain does sometimes with numbers is. Uh... <laughs> How does a movie like this then? So we talked about the original idea. And there's people that want to do what you do. Can you describe the process of making a movie like this, like how it gets made? Did you go to the studio then? Did you go to Warner Brothers with the idea? Did they come to you and say, hey, we kind of want something else from you? Like, how does that whole process start? It's a good question. I mean, because we we did Neighbors, uh, Brendan and myself, my, my writing partner. Sure. We, we did it at Universal. And shortly after, I really wanted to find something to direct. And nobody wants you to direct, especially if you've written. And I kept saying I wanted to direct way too late in the process. So with this one, it was very consciously like, okay, this is going to be the thing that I can direct. But we knew we had a very steep hill to climb in terms of people saying okay to that. So it was going to Will first. You know, I had worked with Will Ferrell on 
Anchorman and Talladega Nights. Nicest guy in the world. And also, you know, coincidentally, one of the funniest men alive. So, you know, we were probably about like halfway through the script where we were like trying to think of, you know, it always helps to picture somebody um, just to get the voice right. And we started picturing Will and then pitched it to him. And then he said, yes, I want to be in this movie. Then finally I said, well, I also want to direct it. And then there was a period where, you know, I had to prove that I could. Like I, I did a lookbook, which is a series of images that you're trying to demonstrate like what the themes are and what the characters are. And one of those images was Will as Robert De Niro in Casino. I just, I, I had this guy Photoshop his face onto De Niro with a cigarette, like hanging out of his lips, really long cigarette. And he looked classic, you know, with, with like women's sunglasses. And right away I could just tell like that he, his eyes lit up at that picture. And it was like, okay, we're, we're going to go make this movie. That's exciting. And and going back even further, well, let, let me ask you about that since you brought up Will Ferrell. I would think you've worked with a lot of great actors, but your first directing job is with Will Ferrell and with Amy Poehler. I mean, how intimidating is that day one? I know you know Will, but, but right. how, it's still got to be a little intimidating to know that I'm working with two of the best in the business. Yeah. I mean, you do your best to just say, okay, this is a gift. You know, like I, I can only screw it up, <laughs> you know, like, they, you know, even if I disappeared, they would probably do well on their own. And sort of when I said that to myself, it was easier to, you know, not expect as much right away and then, and then almost prove myself. Like, I think there's a feeling out process with everybody and we didn't have rehearsal. So day one was that for me and Amy and just playing together. It was fun. I would run, you know, I, I love running out and yelling jokes and then, you know, them going, wait, did you say this? Or like, There's something fun about how chaotic a comedy set can be. But, you you know, you're, you're sort of all feeling each other out. And then I just saw them together. They were spitting gold. And the look on their faces together made everybody excited. So you're just like, OK, day one's done. We got this. You know, like that. It, I think it was clear after that first day that you know, you're dealing with something really special in these two performers and they love each other so much that they're having fun. So I don't know. It's infectious. Like when a comedy set goes well, it's you know, the set doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Um, so they definitely help set the tone. So I'm uh, forever thankful to them both for saying yes to this movie. And it was a blast making it with them. Well, you can you can even tell from just from the film itself that you guys all had a blast. I, I want to ask, there are people in the audience who want to do what you do, who want to be you. How did you first break into Hollywood? How did I first break in? Oh, that's a good question. So I moved to Hollywood without a job. Where are you from initially? I'm from New York. Okay. Uh, you know, there's this, there's a bit of a film business in New York, but LA is where it's centered. And so I, you know, I knew I had to get out there. I was sleeping on Brendan's couch. Supposedly I was shaving and I wouldn't clean up. Uh, in the sink also, but that's a totally different story. Uh, and, and so he quickly kicked me out and <laughs> I had to find a job very quickly. I went to an agency, so a creative artist's agency, and that's agents, you know, like that's swimming with sharks. Sure. Uh, that's, you know, trial by fire, boot camp, but it's a good overview of the industry. So I, I kind of came at it from a business point of view, like a producer agent point of view, you know, biding my time trying to figure out how to break in. And I was an assistant and I was doing whatever <laughs> it needed to be done and just learning, trying to soak it up. And, you know, I like to 
kind of see how other people do it before I get out there. Um, but that's what I did. I, I worked at the agency and I started working for a director, Adrian Line, on, on Faithful that I had heard about from within the agency. So, you know, someone's like, oh, this, this movie's starting up soon. You want to be a director. And I had been so bored working at the agency that I wrote and directed just a spec commercial, which is a commercial on spec. Like nobody asked me to do it. I just thought up a, a cell phone commercial that takes place at a funeral and it's ringing and they can't figure out where it's coming from. And the priest checks his uh, <laughs> phone and then the wife checks her phone. And all of a sudden it's coming from inside the casket. And uh, the priest looks up at the sky and says, hello. <laughs> and uh, it was no key, no key. take it with you. Was the, you know, so I, I did that commercial at CAA, you know, funeral cell phone commercial. And the, you know, I, I passed it around and people liked it and they put in a good word for me. I got an interview with Adrian Line, showed him that commercial like three times, you know, because he, he's like, I heard you shot a commercial. And I was like, yeah, I kind of brought it. And he's like, put it on. And I was like, <laughs> so he rewinded it and gave me notes and then I got that job. So it was like agency, then working for a director. And then, you know, uh, I, should I keep going or I, yeah, that was like the break in? Yeah, actually, actually, that's interesting because I think for me, the interesting part is a, you had to take a dare moving across the country, right? You got to decide that I'm going where the business is. But then number two, what I like is going to CAA. I'll bet that you kind of got a feeling for how the city worked, which I think is important, who the power players were to know. You maybe even got to look at some scripts ahead of time, right? Before you started writing so you could see how scripts are written. I mean, you really, I guess, being at CAA, even though it seems like, you're probably working your ass off like a dog that really you got to see the inner workings. Yep. It was almost like a uh, secret of my success. Michael J. Fox. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, you know, you're kind of right. in the mail room. I wasn't in the mail room technically, but I was kind of like Michael J. Fox, quote unquote, in the mail room in secret of my success. <laughs> no, but yeah, I was, I was biding my time. Yeah. You really learn a lot watching an agent work with a client and you know, I'm actually repped at CAA now. So a lot of the, inner workings that I was exploring back then, you know, I'm not as anxious because I kind of know how those places work. Sure. So, you know, it's a good bird's eye view. It's weird. Like Hollywood is a lot of talented people who have trouble talking to each other. Right. And so you need these kind of bees to go from flower to flower and spread the pollen. And that's what agents are. They're the ones who are willing to be aggressive enough to go talk to that person over there right, um, right. because some creative types don't really do it that well. Sure. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like watching scripts get sold, you know, watching a new script come in and you read it and you go, either this is, oh my God, this is amazing. And then sometimes it doesn't sell and you go, well, why didn't that sell? Because that's so good. And then something that's not as good sells like hotcakes the next day and you go, well, why did that sell? And this one didn't. So even just seeing how it worked and, and almost like a fly on the wall going like, how would I do this? You know, like knowing these rules that I didn't invent, but that are very coded and not written, but understood, I got to know what I'm getting into before I try to get into it. Some people are so talented, they don't need to do that. Right. I'm not that talented. So I needed to do a lot of research. <laughs> I don't <laughs> you know. know. It, I almost jumped in the belly of the beast so quick where Unfaithful ended and the execs were like, we want to option your next script. And I didn't have anything. So it's like, you know, that was my lesson was like, oh, I didn't do my you, you, you got to do two things. You got to be aggressive and go to the people who are in control, but you also need to stockpile material so that if you ever get in the elevator and you have a chance and people say, what do you got? 
you got to answer them. Sure. You can't just say, I'm really smart and funny and right. I want you to hire me. <laughs> right. Right. You always got to have your next gig lined up. It got to be you ready gotta, to go. Yeah. You need a stockpile. You need an arsenal. You just need to come prepared. So it's like the thing I always tell people is have, you know, at least two scripts and an idea before you come out here um, or, or, you know, get out here, write your two scripts and your idea and then make a power move and try to get them in front of people. But it's hard. It's it, nobody gives you the guidebook beforehand. I studied film in school. They did not address the business at all. And, you know, working in Hollywood, that's the half of it is just the business part. Sure. I'm reading that big CAA book right now. Uh, the oh, one that just yeah. Came out. Yeah. That that's pretty fun, huh? Oh, I love it. It's it, I love the way it's written. Just interview, interview, interview. And I'm looking at the, the clock, Andrew, and I think I might have time for one more question, if you don't mind, which is, is there one Easter egg scene or is there one scene where people might miss stuff that you can tell people with listening to Stacking Benjamins about or something that cracked you up? that might be something that people might miss while they're watching the film for the first time. Man, that's a tough one. Honestly, I, I, I guess all I could say is I'm also just cutting the DVD right now. Yeah. So I'm making sure that whatever you miss, you'll get a chance to see because <laughs> uh, there's so much we had to cut out of the movie. So I guess well, as you're watching it, just think up, what else did they do here? And they did a lot. All of <laughs> um, we tried we try to, you know, look, I hedge my bets and I knew from, you know, Judd Apatow, from Adam McKay, that sometimes your first joke may not land. You know, even even if you know it's going to work, you got to stack a Benjamin underneath it, if you will. So you got to you got to make sure that that you've got other jokes that might save the scene. So I guess, yeah, as you're watching it, think up, I guess, just think of how many how many jokes were in this movie and are still in the movie and how many jokes still exist and will be on the DVD. Oh, that's fantastic. The movie is the house. It's all over the United States and elsewhere. Director Andrew J. Cohen. Thanks for spending some time with us, man. Thanks so much. Hey, trivia fans, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just handed that Cohen guy a couple of profile shots on my good side. I threw in a few business cards so he knows I'm legit. <laughs> all I had to do was Take one of Joe's cards, scribble out Joe's name, and write my name on it. You, you better believe this guy is going to be hitting the big screen in no time. Maybe I can even play myself in the Stacking Benjamins documentary. Yeah, but you know, then again, couldn't hurt to have somebody like Brad Pitt or ooh, maybe somebody really handsome like Chuck Woolery playing me. That'd really bring in the ladies. Speaking of movies, you may know that the oldest film to gross over $100 million was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, released in 1935. What you might not know is today's question. Which film is the second oldest to gross over $100 million? I'll be back with the answer and probably a lucrative deal with a Hollywood studio in just a couple of minutes. I raise your hand. Do you drive an extra five minutes in traffic to save just a few pennies at the gas pump? Well, when's the last time you spent five minutes trying to save on the big things like auto loans? Lucky for you, we brought in Nick Clements from Magnify Money with a few tips on saving money if you find yourself financing a car. If you're buying a new car, there's really 
no better deal than the 0% financing that would be offered by the manufacturer. The issue really starts to happen if you don't qualify for the manufacturer's financing or you're buying a used car. And in those cases, I think it's a very good idea to always shop online and get a low rate before you walk onto the lot. Chances are high that the dealer will beat it, but if you don't walk onto the lot with a low rate to begin with, you know you won't get the best deal. Thanks, Nick. More than just auto loans, Magnify Money's the perfect spot for reviewing just how well or not your checking and savings accounts are performing. You might just decide to switch banks. And guess what? Why stick with just one bank at all when you can use magnifymoney.com to always find best in class stuff? StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. Average person saves $450 in interest when they go there. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. Welcome back, movie and trivia fans. Good news to Andy. That's what I call Andrew Cohen because we're close like that, you know. He said he'd get back to me. You know that's Hollywood code for I've got your back. I hear you loud and clear, my bro, Andy. You got me covered. So I'm going to cover you with today's trivia. If you're so amazed a burgeoning movie star like me is doing trivia on a podcast that you forgot the question, two things. Uno, I totally understand, and B, here it is again. What's the second oldest film to gross over $100 million? The answer, it's some 1937 movie starring uh, Rahet Butler and Scarlett O'Hara called Gone with the Wind. What the hell's that movie about? It's like a weather movie? Twister was way better. Anyway, I'm not sure. Frankly, Joe, I don't give a damn. See ya. That was amazing. I'm incredible. I can't believe you got it. <laughs> I can't either. You know, out of all the people that know very little about movies, I think you and I have had talks about movies. You don't. You, I don't know anything. You're a, you're I don't a know movie anything. guy. Where did you get that right from? Where'd that come from? I don't. It must be being in the basement, man. It must be, be in the basement. Rubbed off on you. Yeah. Oh, that's that's funny. The big thanks to Andrew J. Cohen for coming down to the basement. How cool is that? I'm, I'm fired up. I haven't seen it yet. It's been out for a week. I got to go. It's going to be funny. Oh, my God. I got to go see it. It just sounds so great. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they're disrupting the life insurance industry, Roger, by focusing on those two things you value most. What are the two things you value most? Simplicity and donuts, pizza. I was gonna say, we had some great pizza, we had some fantastic pizza, but no, you got it wrong. It's your family and your time, of course. Yeah, I like my family, <laughs> and you <laughs> like your time. I love my time, absolutely. That's why they created a high quality, affordable term life insurance policy issued by Mass Mutual that you can purchase entirely online. And qualified healthy applicants, guess what? They even get to skip the medical exam. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote and learn about life insurance the modern way. That's stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. And you're a guy like me who's been in financial planning for a long time. That exam slows down the process so much. So much because they have to come to your office. You got to schedule it. Oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah, it's anything you can do to make things easier. Because this is stuff that we know is important, but we don't want to deal with is always of big value. It's incredible value. And we're going to give some value, hopefully, to our friend Andrew today, who we're throwing out the lifeline to. Say hello, Andrew. Hey, Joe and OG. 
This is Andrew, and I've got a tax question for you. I just bought my first home. I'm the only one on the deed. However, my girlfriend is planning on moving with me in a few months. We have decided to share the costs of housing, so the mortgage and the insurance and all that. So my question is, how do I treat the quasi-rent that she's going to pay me every month? Is that something that I would need to report on an earned income tax form, or could that be considered a cost-sharing arrangement? And would that allow me to avoid paying tax on the money that she would give me for the rental payments? Any thoughts on this would be very helpful. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the question, Andrew. And uh, Roger, I think I'll start with we're not, uh, we're not CPAs and taxes are something that we, uh, you know, we can play a tax person on TV, but we're not really one. So what do you think? My thought is if you're going to if you're going to have an arrangement like that rather than have her contribute to the mortgage cuz that creates a bunch of issues. A lot of issues that uh that you may not even realize that are there, not that they'll pop up, but there are a lot of other ways to accomplish the same task which is the being equitable in how you handle the expenses. Yeah, but let's talk about what those issues might be before we get to, to get to another way of handling it. First, if he's going to officially charge her rent, then he should have like a rental agreement. Yeah. And then you're going to have accounting for that because now that's technically income to you because right. you're renting out part of your space. So that creates a whole ball. Yeah. Of and now you have a business and now it's going against the mortgage and the cost of the house. Definitely. Don't and want so do. now part of your, your residence now is, and so that it could be beneficial. You might make some money that way. I don't think it's worth the hassle. Do you? Not with your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Not with your girlfriend. Good point. So a better way to do that. I think a better way to do that would be just to, you know, what we're trying, look at what you're trying to accomplish, which is to have some sharing of the household expenses. And there are plenty other ways to do that, whether it's paying utility bills, buying groceries, having her contribute money that's not technically to the mortgage, but to the household expenses. Yeah, I think that accomplishes it much more simply and gets rid of... 50,000 problems. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things where you don't want to be line item by line item. You want to figure out, okay, what are we really trying to accomplish here? Which is that equitable expenses. And if you insist on line item, I would get some professional help in your corner. Definitely. It's exactly what I would do because it's going to get complicated in a hurry with girlfriend. (laughs) Especially when her saying, what? You're doing what? Uh, Thanks for the question, Andrew. If you've got a question and want us to throw out the lifeline to you, it's stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. That will get you right there. Or if you go to the Stacky Benjamin site across the top, it says questions for the show and uh, we'll throw you out the lifeline. Doug also brings down the mail and we get letters. Today's letter comes to us from Steve. He says, hey, everybody, love the show. Two questions. One, I remember one of the hosts, maybe Leonard Gregg. Well, Leonard Gregg aren't, aren't hosts, they're contributors. I, I get what you're saying, though, Steve. Going on a rant against money market or emergency funds, just sitting there and not earning any returns. And how he'd rather it would be in the stock market. I can't find it in the archives, and I constantly have this debate with my girlfriend. I have plenty of money in stocks that I can sell if really needed. She disagrees. Who's right? Let's cover that one first, and then we'll get to his second question after that. But 
emergency fund or just sell stocks. As Steve says, he can sell a bunch of stocks. By the way, Steve, it's Greg McFarlane who says you shouldn't have an emergency fund. You should just sell your stocks. I remember having a conversation with Greg on the show about that. It's idiotic. Well, let's look at <laughs> well, let's look at stocks since 1950. So 100% invested in, say, the S&P 500 index, which you can't invest in specifically. Since 1950, there have been over 700 one-year periods if you look at rolling returns. The average return that you've gotten over those one-year periods is about 12.5%. But the worst one-year experience was negative 43%. The whole idea of an emergency fund isn't the return on assets in terms of investing. It's the return on assets so you don't have to make a, a decision under stress, whether it's borrowing money, whether it's selling at the wrong time, or whether it's reducing your lifestyle. I think of cash reserves as the airbag of life. So you can actually let your investment assets actually be long-term investment assets. I totally agree, which is why I can't believe if I'm going to invest every dollar that I have, that I have to do, to your point, I have to get more conservative with some of the money. And how you invest. Because yeah. if it goes to the floor, then I'm screwed. So why wouldn't I? It seems like my aggregate, everybody wants to maximize the return of every penny in the portfolio and you just can't do it. And I get the argument of, oh, I got a line of credit or I have access to capital through borrowing and interest rates are so low, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I just have that line of credit? But here's the, here's the thing with things like that. When life happens in a bad way, a line of credit generally will go away. Usually, if you don't need it, they're going to offer it to you at great rates. But as soon as you need it, you're, they're probably going to Look at how, how many people after the last market downturn, the real estate market downturn, their lines of credit, they got notes in their bank saying, hey, we are shortening your line of credit. And all of a sudden, where they thought they had credit, they didn't have credit anymore. Right. Like, this credit's not forever. Yeah. The ROI on your cash reserves has is the flexibility you have to, one, not just handle problems when they come up, but also you have that dry powder to take advantage of opportunities when they come up. And it's hard to know when those things are going to happen. I love how you you and OG both say the words dry powder. Are you guys uh, you guys go to some school for that? We're we're, we're both from Texas, man. It's about shooting <laughs> dry powder. I need some ammo in the, in the magazine. Dry. you said dry powder. I threw up in my mouth a little. <laughs> like I I thought we got rid of OG it's for this show. Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, you know what I think the difference is? I think you and I are people that have worked with lots of people before, and we've seen the weirdest crap happen to people. And I think that Greg's point of view is, listen, in my, you know, my own experience with being one person, I don't expect anything to ever happen. I think that's the way we look at it. But you and I have a little bit more of the law of large numbers behind us, and the weird crap happens. It, it always happens. happens. Yeah, and, and you're right. In an individual life, the odds may be... You feel like they're not there, but when you deal with enough of it, you just see how crazy things come out of nowhere that can really derail a life. And I think sometimes we forget that the whole point of investing or building wealth is to achieve something that's tied to your life in terms of not letting your life go off rails. It's not just about maximizing the return potential in every last dollar. It's about your life. Yeah, been out well put. If you've got a question for us, you can send us a note. I would encourage you to have us throw out the lifeline to you. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail for the Haven Lifeline. The way to do that or to write us a note is to head to stackingbenjamins.com on the top of the site. It says question for the show. 
click that, you'll see the Haven Lifeline. Then below that, you'll see the way to write us a note or just send it to Joe at stackingbenjamins.com. Thanks also to everybody who's left us a review on the show. That tells people exactly what they're getting into when they listen to the Stacky Benjamin show, that this might be doing something a little different here than we do, than they are getting it from Dave Ramsey or, or from the uh, Retirement Answer Man podcast. And before we leave, I got to say a big thank you to you, man. Thanks for hanging out today. I'm in the basement. This is one of my favorite things. <laughs> it's so great that you can come by. I mean, you know, Texarkana, it's... It's a so gorgeous cool. town. I think it's like the oasis on the... Uh, nice. Work yeah. it. Own yeah, it. I don't, I don't know what else to say. It's, <laughs> it's, it's here. Texarkana is actually here. It is here. It is a place, and we are here. Uh, coming up on Friday, we have a fantastic roundtable. And you know what? I'm going to let you show up Friday and find out who our special guest is because we've got some a fun special guest on Friday. And then next week, uh, unfortunately, OG's back in that chair and uh, we're going back to town. I'm going to leave him a little present in the chair. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. All right, everybody. Thanks for playing. Go stack some Benjamins. So what did we learn today? First, saving for college, take some advice from the new movie, The House. Save early so you don't have to open up your own illegal casino. Second, think that your advisor is sweet-talking you? Don't be afraid to look him up online and ask important, verifying questions before letting someone help you with your money, no matter how nice they seem. You could save yourself a million dollars or more. But the big lesson? Never limit your dreams. All this time I've been waiting for my big break and it's finally here. But I won't forget about the little guys that helped me along the way. Even though Joe and OG aren't worth thanking, you, my friend, you, you made all this possible. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening and for especially paying attention to the good parts of the show. You and I both know what those are, don't we? Special thanks to Andrew J. Cohen for stopping by the show today. You can see his film, The House, at a theater near you. Thanks to Roger Whitney for sitting in for OG today. You'll find his show, The Retirement Answer Man, wherever you find this show. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Kathleen Selmans handles design, newsletter, and classroom opportunities. If you'd like to learn more, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash classes. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjaminsCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor.
Welcome to the After Show, the part of the show that doesn't exist. For those of you new to the After Show, what happens in the After Show stays in the After Show. We don't talk about it. When people have talked about it, which is pretty annoying, we finally realized we needed something, some way for people that just can't keep their mouth shut to talk about it. So if you have to talk about it, call it dessert, all right? But I want to talk about this idea that Andrew J. Cohen talked about in the movie about uh, casinos. I don't want to talk about legal casinos, unless you got a legal casino story. But uh, how much time have you spent in casinos? A fair amount of time, but not a lot of time. It's hard when you understand odds and you start to get into the numbers <laughs> to want to spend a lot of time in the casino. But you know what's funny? Some of the best poker players on earth and in the casinos are money managers from Wall Street. Which is interesting, isn't it? It's because they know odds. They, they know odds. And I think, well, poker is different than being in a casino most of the time. Because in poker, you're playing the person. Yeah. You're not playing the house. You're right. Which is a very different thing. And I, I can see the attraction of that. You yeah, know, staring at Joe across the table, being able to read him like a book. I mean, that's easy money right there. I got pocket rockets. <laughs> One of the best times I've had in a casino, though, we went to Tahoe. It was like Final Four weekend, and I lost all my money really quickly. So I went to the nickel slots. So I'm dating myself a little bit. Went to the nickel slots. The waitress comes up, and I give her like 40 bucks. <laughs> and I say, just keep them coming. And I sat there at the nickel slots, playing nickel slots, and getting drunk off my butt. And it was forty forty dollars, so it was Basically, like yeah, yeah, like she loved know, me. And nobody tips at the nickel slots. Evenings entertainment. Oh, so much fun, so much fun. <laughs> Great, you spent nothing. Yeah, you know I'm not a gambler, and I have given lots of financial planning speeches. I got hired by a guy that had a practice in Las Vegas to fly out from Detroit to Vegas and give financial planning speeches, which sounds like an oxymoron, right? <laughs> like, why would you go there? But we go there, and because the casinos had these huge banquet facilities, right, convention facilities, they would rent the room right on the strip for very little money or off the strip for very little money. So I would be there to speak two nights, and generally after the second night, they'd fly me home on a red eye, right? So I would spend, I would, I would fly out there in the morning, I would give a speech one night, I'd spend one night in the hotel room, then I'd spend the whole next day working from the hotel room, because I really don't like to gamble. Every once in a while, i walk down the strip and just people watch, which that, was yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. The, the, the one that always got me, the three guys in a row, do you know what I'm talking about? There's these three guys in a row, and they have these little cards, and they take their hands and they do this. And they hit their hands with a little card three times, and then they try to hand it to you. I've never seen that. Oh, I, it was all over the place. And they hand it to me, and you take the little card, and there is someone of a different sex than I am <laughs> who is naked. And what sex are you? With a phone number. Depends on who you ask. But with a phone number on it, right? And so it's funny because the guy that hired me, I was telling him, I said, how weird that was. The, and, and the guy that hired me, Pat, he said, he said, you know what's funny about that? Why are there three guys? Like the third guy, you're like, oh, it's porn. If I had known it was porn, I would have taken it from the first two guys. <laughs> I've never seen that, like the, really. There were always three in a row, and that was amazing. But anyway, so that's a side story. The big story was one night, I've given speeches. They flow me out there maybe five or six times. And their assistant, Beth, who is just incredible, just an incredible person. She ran everything. I ended up interfacing with Beth far more than the two advisors, Pat and Mark, who hired me. And uh, Beth and I are cleaning stuff up. And Pat says, do you guys want to go learn how to play something? 
And Beth said, you know, I've always wanted to learn how to play craps. Which has the best odds in the casino. Well, and I don't know anything about that. All I know is there's always a bunch of people hollering, right, at the craps table. It looks like fun. And so me being a game geek, I'm like, oh, yeah, rolling some dice and having some fun. Yeah, let's do that. He goes, okay, we're going to go to, what's it called? Is it Camelot? The, the, the castle one. Oh, um, Excalibur. Excalibur, yes. We're going to go to Excalibur because down on this end of the strip, that's the cheapest stuff. If we were up on the other end, we could have gone cheaper. But he said, bring $200. And he said, by the way, that's not even enough money. But bring $200 and uh, meet us there. And I remember going to the ATM machine. And I don't gamble. And I'm taking $200 out. And I'm like, I am. This, this is horrible. <laughs> this is the worst thing ever. And so so we we go there. And Pat says, he said, okay. Beth and Joe, do you want to know how to learn craps the quick way, or do you want the more long version of how to play? And of course, I said, the long way. You want to know how to play it? No, I want to know the quick way. Really? Okay. Give me. I want give me the quick way. And Beth said, Yeah, give me give me the quick way. And he says, Okay. See the guy with the stick. Hand him your two hundred bucks because that's where it's going. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. It was it was horrible. Did you do it? No, uh, play craps or hand him the 200 hand bucks? Hand him the 200 bucks. I did not hand him the 200 bucks. Yeah. I'm done. What's that joke? I was, I was born at night, but not last night. So uh, the bad news was I won. That is bad news if you've never played. Because yeah. then it's like it's like picking Apple as your first stock and never selling it. I won you think se- it's easy. I won 75 bucks on $200. And then I quit because I, I know the odds aren't in my favor. So I won. The next time they flew me out there, I went by myself. I took 200 bucks. I did exactly what he told me. I won 75 bucks again. Do you remember what your bet was? Oh, I always just did the 6-8 bet. I mean, I always did the basic bets, right? Uh, Pat would always say, he would make all these stupid bets and he would lose. And he'd go, don't do any of these bets I'm doing. He's like, don't do them all. He's like, the problem with craps, and it's true, the more you know, the more money you lose. Well, and the thing with craps, I remember when I playing craps is I could never drink when I was playing craps because you can get a lot of money out there on different things and not realize... Wow, I got that much money out there. You have like $150 on the table at one time. There's people listening to this that go, 150 bucks is nothing. You know, because some of these tables, like when we were in Tahoe, I couldn't even play craps because the minimum bet was like 20 bucks. And I was telling my friend Rick, who was with me, I'm like, you're going to have eight bets out there at one time. So the, you know, the minimum amount of money you're going to have on the table is like 120, 140 bucks. He's like, I can't do that. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going near that. Yeah. Yeah. It's all relative, but yeah, craps is fun, but. You can get in trouble. Yeah. So the third time I won. Next time I won. Then I went out there again and I won. Then, you know, they opened the casinos in Detroit, went with some friends to the casino in Detroit, and I won again. Dude, you're lucky. And then the next time I go with some friends and I told them, I'm like, I win every time. It is amazing. I lost 200 bucks in like 10 minutes. And then I remember going back to the ATM. Is that not the saddest feeling? It's so quick. You're like... I didn't even have fun for that. I didn't even get my first drink for that. It, it, that part wasn't bad because I thought it was such a fluke because I won so many times. So then I just go to the ATM. I'm like, oh, yeah, it was a fluke. Yeah. Nah. Yep, it's gonna, so I go and I get 200 more. I'm going to win it all back. I lose that 200 bucks in like another 10 minutes. And then it hit me. I just lost $400 in less than half an hour. And I am just, I remember I had young kids, you know, were making money but not where i could lose four hundred dollars in, in that short a period of time like oh my god oh that still hurts that has to happen to everyone though some people just never learn the lesson though it still hurts have you lost big money on a bet most money i've lost in vegas maybe two grand <laughs> over the course of a weekend though yeah probably a night <laughs> 
but I don't gamble that much. This was years ago. Years ago. Yeah. 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 Uh, my what, son what really didn't. My son really didn't need new shoes though, so it was okay. Yeah. I was actually playing blackjack. Yeah. See, I've never played blackjack at a casino. It's not a good game to play. Actually, it's fun. To, it's a fun game, but it was blackjack. Sure. All right, guys, take a lesson. Yeah, just hand your money to the dude with a stick, yeah. or send it to me. <laughs> Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.